How about we give these families another round of applause? <laughs> Wonderful to be a part of that this morning. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? We are um, kicking off a brand new series this morning. Yay! The series is uh, entitled The Life of Jesus. And over the next several weeks, we are planning to move, uh, journey through Jesus' life chronologically, uh, including Easter, up to and including Easter and even beyond Easter. And we're, as we go, we're hoping that, of course, we'll learn more about Him, we'll learn more about how to be more like Jesus. Uh, but hopefully also as we move and know and discover more about Jesus' life, we're hoping that it will provide a deeper understanding, a deeper, um, uh, a deeper impact when we do come to Easter and we really understand the depth of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Uh, but this morning we start early on in Jesus' life, of course, uh, in, uh, with a story of Jesus from Jesus' childhood. And if you're familiar with the gospel books, the gospel stories, they're four, first four books of the New Testament. They're uh, kind of like the biographies of Jesus written by four different people. Um, if you're familiar with those, you'll, you'll understand that other than stories of Jesus' birth and infancy, there are not really a whole lot of other stories about Jesus as a child until you get to Jesus at, at about the age of 30. There's kind of a big empty spot that we don't have a whole lot to go on. There are actually quite a few stories of Jesus as a child around, but they're in what we call apocryphal literature, which means that they're historical writings that aren't actually included in the Bible. Um, and so um, although we can rely fully on the New Testament because we have manuscripts of the New Testament dating back to within a generation or so of the actual events taking place, they're very historically accurate and reliable. The apocryphal literature, unfortunately, we don't have anything earlier than about three or four hundred years after the events took place. So although they're kind of good stories and interesting stories, we can't really rely on them historically uh, with the information that we currently have and understand. Um, but there are a couple of fun stories uh, I thought I'd share with you that appear in this uh, apocryphal literature. There's one story of the boy Jesus who is playing with his mates, um, as boys do, uh, in a river in their town of Nazareth and uh, on a Sabbath. And what they're doing is they're, they're taking the clay from the river and they're making little clay figurines. They're making figurines of birds. And uh, um, that's, that's kind of cool, but this religious leader comes along and sees what these boys are doing and isn't very happy. He tells them off because they're making something on the Sabbath. They're breaking the Sabbath law. And so the religious leader is about to literally go up and destroy these boys' clay figurines. And I like to think a, a cheeky young Jesus claps his hands and the, the birds spring to life and fly away before the religious leader can come and break them. <laughs> Kind of funny, isn't it? Oh, there's another one where a boy Jesus is helping his dad Joseph in uh, their carpentry workshop. Uh, and they're making a bed for somebody in the local village. And Joseph has gotten to the end of his um, resources, at the end of his wood and timber and everything. He pulls out the last plank and the plank is 
too short. And uh, he doesn't really know what to do. That's all he's got left. He has to finish this bed for the customer. And so Jesus helps out a bit. He, uh, the legend goes that he goes around to the end of this plank of wood and grabs it by the end and just stretches it out until it becomes the same length as all the others, exactly what Joseph needs. And these kind of fun stories, aren't they? And, and uh, I genuinely hope that one day, either in this life or the next, we will discover that there's some truth to these, because that would be really cool. Um, but at, the, at this point in time, with the information that we have, we just can treat them like interesting stories, but can't really rely on them to be too historically accurate. But there is a story of Jesus as a boy in the New Testament, and it appears in one book, one of these biographies, uh, by the author Luke, um, the book of Luke, and it shares this story of a 12-year-old Jesus. Now, why would Luke include a story of the 12-year-old Jesus when the other authors didn't? Well, it's important to understand that Luke was a Greek man. And in Greek culture and Greek tradition, it was believed that kings and conquerors and heroes were not made, but they were born that way. Kings were born kings. It was in their blood. It was what they were supposed to do. And so every king, every conqueror, every uh, military, successful military hero or anything like that always had a story of them as a child in order to kind of prove that the adult hero was actually who they said they were, that, that there was proof because there was a story of the child that proved that the adult was who they said they were. For instance, Alexander the Great. We, most of us know Alexander the Great or at least recognize the name. Of course, the um, all-conquering hero of the Greeks in the sort of generations leading up to the time of Jesus. Uh, there is a story of Alexander the Great at the age of 12. Alexander is in his horse stables with his dad and, and his, uh, the fellow workers who help raise these horses. And they're trying to tame a wild horse, a big wild horse. And the workers and, and Alexander's father just can't do it. It's just too tough. This, this horse is wild and they just can't tame it. Alexander puts his hand up. He says, oh, can I give it a go? <laughs> 12-year-old Alexander and his dad and the workers kind of say, oh, sure, all right, whatever. Like, fully expecting that he'll get thrown off this horse, like, halfway across the stable, and they can all have a good laugh, right? Alexander, however, the legend goes, he, he go, gets up to the horse, grabs it by the bridle, and looks it right in the eyes, stares it down for what seems like ages, and then eventually suddenly swings himself around onto the back of this horse, rides around bareback, holding on for dear life, and eventually the horse can't shake him and he eventually tames this wild horse. And the legend goes that this horse is the horse that Alexander rode into every battle. Again, interesting story. It may be true, it may not be true, but what it does is it proves that it is evidence of the fact that Greek culture at the time wanted to know one question. Is the boy like the man? Is there something that we can see in this child that will give us a glimpse into the future of what they will become? And so Luke includes a story of a 12-year-old Jesus. Let's read it together. It's found in Luke chapter 2. It starts with this. Now, every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. 
And when he was 12 years old, they went up as usual for the festival. Now, let's put ourselves in their shoes for a moment. Nazareth is where this family comes from, Moses, uh, Mary and Joseph and Jesus and his younger siblings. It's about 100 kilometers from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is perched up on a mountain, so the, the journey is largely uphill. There's no cars, of course, to carry them, so they're traveling by foot. It's a multi-journey there and a multiple-day festival and a multiple-day journey back. So they're carrying provisions. So it's 100 kilometers by foot, carrying provisions, mainly uphill with young children. (laughs) And they do this every year. (laughs) If that doesn't give you more respect for Joseph and Mary as parents, I don't know what will. But it's a pretty epic journey. The story continues. When the festival was ended and they started to return, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents didn't know it. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey and then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. And when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. Now, how many parents have lost a child? Temporarily, we've misplaced our beloved God-given, vulnerable, human, precious beings that we love more than anything else. We've just misplaced them (laughs) for a minute or two. Maybe online, if that's you. I want to know, what's the record? Is it like 30 seconds? You've like taken you a while to look, oh, there they are. Or has it been a few minutes? It's a bit of a scary kind of, briefly kind of, right? I'm sure we've all been there, right? We've all been there. Um, but, you know, before we can get all judgy up on Mary and Joseph, let's understand another thing. Jesus was 12 years old at this point. And the age 12 is significant for Jewish kids because at the age of 12, this would have been the first Passover that Jesus would have been allowed in the temple. And it would have been the first Passover that, therefore, Jesus was formally recognized as an adult, as a man. And so Jesus would have traveled up to Jerusalem with the women as a child, because women traveled with the children separately to the men, and then he would have traveled home from Jerusalem as an adult with the men. And so you can kind of start to picture it now. When Mary and Joseph get back together in the evening, because Overnight, they would camp together as families again. You can kind of picture Mary is at home, Joseph comes back, and Mary's like, uh, where's Jesus? <laughs> and Joseph is like, I thought he was with you. <laughs> and Mary is like, I thought he was with you. <laughs> and they just suddenly realize that he's not. How many parents have had that conversation? <laughs> yeah, I, the, I thought he was with you conversation. Absolutely. Let's continue. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding as his answers and his answers. You see, they'd traveled a whole day downhill and then realized that they were missing Jesus. So then they had to travel all the way back up the hill, which was probably more than a day back because it was uphill. And so by the time they actually were searching around and they found Jesus in the temple, it was like the third day it had taken them. 
And uh, the, Jesus was in the temple and he was learning from the rabbis. And this is the way that kids learned at that age, were with a- answering questions and asking questions and, and in this discussion with rabbis and teachers and, and fellow disciples and students. And uh, the rabbis, it says, were amazed, not at the fact that Jesus was there doing that, but at the fact that Jesus had such a depth of understanding of God's law. They were simply amazed at how much he knew, deep down in his soul, how much he knew of God. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. You can picture it, can't you? If you're a parent, you've probably said these words pretty much to this effect, you know. Where have you been? We've been searching all over for you. We've been worried sick. (laughs) We've travelled all the way down and now we've had to travel all the way back. You should have told your father where you were. (laughs) You can sense that... um, that feelings welling up. If you're a parent, you know what feelings Mary and Joseph are feeling right now, right? That, that unique combination of, of stress and anger, but also relief and joy and happiness and love and compassion all at the same time. Like it's a very, probably a very unique set of circumstances to provoke those emotions all at the same time. But we can, we can really feel with Mary and Joseph. And then come Jesus' first recorded words, the first red letters of the New Testament. He said to them, why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he said to them. Now, this word uh, house that is translated here doesn't necessarily mean a physical kind of house or building, but can be translated as like, um, about your father's business or about your father's interests. And, uh, and to Christians today, it's not uncommon at all. In fact, it's very common for us to call God our father, right? It's, it's just a normal part of our um, discussions and conversations about God. But for Jesus, in this moment, with these people around, Calling God his father was profound. This, this was mind-blowing for the people listening. You see, in the Old Testament, there are basically zero references to anybody calling God their personal father, their dad. It just didn't happen. There are references of calling God the um, father of the nations or the father of Israel, and there's, there's um, kind of... Pictures of God as a father to describe what he's like, but no one has actually ever called him their personal dad before. And all of a sudden, this 12-year-old boy is saying, God is my dad. God is my father. That is profound. In fact, it's so countercultural that we read many years later, as an adult, the religious leaders want to kill Jesus because he claims that God is his father. That's how much it rubbed people the wrong way. That's how different and bizarre it was. And we get a glimpse for the first time that this 12-year-old boy knows who he is. And his poor old mum and dad (laughs) are confused. They don't really know what to do. To them, Jesus' father's business is carpentry, making furniture, building houses, that sort of thing. 
And he's telling them that, no, his father's business is here in the temple about God's law. It continues, his mother treasured all these things in her heart and Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favour. And that's about all we have as a childhood story of Jesus until the age of about 30 when Jesus is baptised and all the rest of the stories that we have in the Gospels come about. So why did Luke include this story in his biography of Jesus? Because you look at it and it's kind of like, eh, it's not an overly exciting story. <laughs> Family takes kid to festival, loses kid at festival, finds kid again at festival, takes kid home happily ever after. Right? <laughs> There's something that Luke is trying to tell his readers. There's something about the boy Jesus that informs our understanding of the man, Jesus. And it's this. At the age of 12, he knows exactly who he is. He said, did you not know that I must be in my father's house or about my father's business? Before Jesus started his ministry, before the miracles, before the parables, before the disciples, before the crucifixion, before the resurrection, before any of that happened, Jesus knew who he was. And to Luke, the Greek writer, and to the readers of his biography, Greek readers, this one story would have helped to prove that the man Jesus actually was who he said he was, the Son of God. But what about for you and I, though? Because many of us, not all, but many of us, whether we're here in the room or participating online, many of us are already convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, right? So what about for us? Is there something else in this story that can have good, deep, greater meaning for us that we can learn from to be more like him? And I think there are two things in the form of questions that this story can bring up in us. The first one is... Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Because after Jesus called God his father, he taught his followers, his disciples, to call God their father as well. Like in Matthew chapter 6. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to who? Your Father in heaven. So wait. God is Jesus' Father and God is my Father. Or he teaches his disciples how to pray. And in Matthew chapter 6, he says, Pray then this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven. Wait. <laughs> Jesus, you're saying that God is your Father and God can be my Father and God is our Father. And, and when Jesus 
is risen from the dead and he first appears to his uh, women followers, he, he tells them these things in John chapter 20. He says, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. So wait, <laughs> let's just get this straight. Jesus, you're saying that God is your father, God is my father, God is our father, which makes, which makes you, Jesus, my brother? <laughs> Whoa, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? We are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ himself. In his own words, he considers us his siblings. Do you know who you are? We have been made a part of God's family, not because of how good we are, not because of how much good stuff we've done, not be much because of how not bad, good, no, a little bit, how good we can speak, <laughs> not because of how much we know our Bibles or how much we pray or how good-looking we may be, because it's not what you know, it's who you know. We are blood relatives with Jesus Christ, not because we share the same DNA, but because he shed his blood for us. We are brothers and sisters of Christ because the Holy Spirit that lived inside of him lives inside of us. Romans 8 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Joint heirs with Christ. So all the good stuff that Jesus deserves for being the Son of God, we too will inherit. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Do you know who you are? The second question I think we can ask ourselves from this story is, do you know your father's business? Do you know your father's business? I've been asked many times in the last 15, 20 years or so if I'd ever considered going into medicine as a career. Now, if you don't know, my dad is a doctor, and actually my grandfather was a doctor as well. And although... Um, let's, yeah, be careful how I put this. <laughs> although the idea of helping people and saving lives and all that sort of thing appeals to me, it really does. The idea of inspecting people's strange growths in inconvenient places <laughs> or trying to pronounce the tricky names of drugs or holding somebody's life in your hands with a decision that you... Might, they, those things do not appeal to me <laughs> at all. <laughs> and in actual fact, as Sandy actually explained a couple of weeks ago in her message, my great-grandmother was a concert pianist and my grandfather was a church organist and... Actually, both my grandfathers were singers in church choirs, and my mom and many of my aunties and uncles have been musicians or music teachers. 
over the years, and many of my siblings and cousins play music in churches all around Australia. Medicine isn't really my family business. (laughs) Music is more my family business, and church music probably more even specifically. But you know what? The family business that I'm more about is the family business of my Father in heaven. That's the family business that I'm all about. The business of reconnecting lives to God who have previously been disconnected from Him. The business of loving others as I love myself. The business of making disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that Jesus has commanded. That's my Father's business. And if you're a child of God here this morning, joining us online perhaps, you have to be about your Father's business. You have to be about your Father's business. And maybe this morning you just needed a reminder of that. Maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit is just touching your heart and saying you just needed that reminder. You must be about your Father's business, your Heavenly Father's business. Maybe this morning you're joining us for the first time, or maybe you're joining us and you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, and you definitely don't consider yourself a child of God. Maybe you don't even know how you could possibly be good enough to be a child of God. What can I just say? We can be children of God no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter what our past looks like, no matter what we've done in the past, no matter who we've been with, whatever, God is reaching out. He loves each and every one of us as he would love his very own son. And he calls out to us and invites us to be a part of his family. And maybe maybe you feel like that's something that you want to do this morning for the first time. Maybe you just want to find out more about what that looks like or ask some questions. There's going to be some people up the front at the end of the service and we'd love to chat with you. If you're joining us online, there'll be a button that pops up that says, I give my life to Jesus and you can press on that and uh, you can have a chat with one of our hosts or pastors online. Maybe this morning, though, you just needed a reminder of who you were, who you are. And so we're about to sing a song to close our service. But as we do, I want to invite you all to stand. Wherever you are, stand in your seat. Stand if you're watching online. Probably don't stand if you're driving a car right now. That, don't try that. But I'm going to ask you the question that I asked you at the start about half an hour ago, kind of awkwardly. You didn't really know where I was going with it. But now you know the answer. I've given you the answer. Who are you? You're a child of God. Who are you? I'm a child of God. Say it out loud. Who are you? I'm a child of God. Shout it if that's what you want to do. Who are you? I'm a child of God.